to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. I am not Marie McGrath, but I'm a technical producer, Leonardo Coelho. How has your relationship fared during the pandemic? Not too great? You're not alone. Nicole McLeod, clinical counselor, can help with the interpersonal neurobiological approach to understanding the mind. And finally, why should you install a mirror on the ceiling in your bedroom? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Nicole McLeod is my guest. She is a registered clinical counselor in private practice in West Vancouver, British Columbia. She focuses on couples and individuals open to creating a more fulfilling life. Her approach is informed by the interpersonal neurobiological approach to understanding the mind, the developmental model, and attachment theory. Her website is coastalmind.com. Tonight, Nicole McLeod is here to talk about the impact of the pandemic on relationships, how it's affected everyone, and how you are not alone. She has some simple practices that can give your relationship a boost. Good evening, Nicole. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on tonight. I love your show. You are very loved across the country. Oh, you're too kind. You're too sweet. I'm sure about that. <laughs> um, so these have been tough times for all of us. And uh, you have a clinical practice. What have you seen in your clinical practice over the last 18 months or so with what has happened with couples? And how did they do? I, I imagine it was all over the place. Yeah, yeah, it actually, it really was. There was such a cross range of, you know, some couples were actually really thriving, but many others were struggling. And, you know, there's some really good reasons for that. I mean, since the lockdown, people had to go suddenly into um, isolation or, you know, having huge disconnect from family and friends, from their own co-workers. And a lot of these things that people set up and couples had set their lives up. So they had, um, you know, great outlets going to gyms and community centers. So all of that was stopped so suddenly. And I mean, we are tribal people. We're supposed to be in relation. So to take that away, I mean, just that cost a lot of stress. And then, you know, all the stressors, um, illness, the fear of COVID. And while it was so important that we got so many updates and those numbers from Bonnie Henry, Dr. Bonnie Henry every week or every day, I think people who were a bit prone to being fearful, it amplified it for them. But I would say one of the biggest things that I saw in my practice and, you know, throughout other colleagues saw it too, was what happened in terms of monotony. So this is the couple that, you know, one of them maybe worked out of the house and they were used to every day coming home and there was some freshness. But that day in, day out got pressurized with homeschooling, um, you know, a lot of stress between worrying about job loss and relationships got stagnant. They got stale. So it, it, it took a big toll, but fortunately this wasn't for everybody. You know, some, some couples, they actually started to thrive and this was interesting to see. So I was constantly looking around at what were these couples doing? How were some of them thriving? And, you know, I asked lots of questions and some people were finding that simply getting outside and playing was what the through line for them was. They were being together because they couldn't go out and do typical dates like movies, dinners. And when everything got locked down, 
people started to go for walks a little bit more. I mean, even in our little neighborhood, it's pretty quiet. We started seeing more and more people pass by and they were connected. They were together. You know, I have an elderly couple that I worked with and they started going for drives to the beach and having picnics. So there was a playful component that was starting to merge as well. So getting outside, being together and being playful were sort of the three biggest through lines I saw. And we talk about getting outside. Are you talking about ecotherapy by any chance? Yeah, exactly. So ecotherapy, it's also called green therapy, um, forest bathing, all these awesome terms. And it really is about being in nature. And now, you know, you can get out in nature and not really be in nature. I've certainly done that myself. I've tried to go for a run and I've been stuck in my head the whole time. But when you can get really, really present in nature and pay attention to your senses, there's tons of studies and research to show that, you know, depression rates start to drop, anxiety gets a little bit less, um, you know, blood pressure, all sorts of processes improve. And it's really an opportunity to get away from all the urban distractions, all the, you know, sirens and cars. And when we can get away from that, we can get a little more quiet and get into our inner world. So, yeah. I just wanted Um, to ask you, um, do you think you mentioned um, that we had our lives all set up and people were going to the gym and date nights and all this kind of thing? Do you think we took or couples took their lives for granted before the pandemic? And do you think there's a risk as we reemerge into society and take off the masks and get back to our old lives, perhaps go back into the office? Do you think that there's a risk that couples will uh, take it for granted again and have a short memory? Or do you think there's room for some gratitude about, you know, the real meaning of life? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I'm really hoping I've seen that some people are choosing the, some of the couples that have really thrived, they, they've chosen actually not to go back to that hectic pace and to really honor and put some nice boundaries around kind of couple time. So making time together and being really playful. And, you know, that idea of being playful isn't wasn't so easily readily available to them. So it was almost like a forced pause. Um, so a lot of people say, you know, what what is play? You know, what? What does that even really mean? And it's not the easiest one to answer. When I noticed that in the couples that were doing better, I was bringing it into therapy and they said to me, well, I, I don't actually know how to play. What do you mean by that? And it's not a place that we come through by thinking about it. It's not something that goes on your to-do list. It's more a feeling about it. So I really hope that we can take some of the good things hopefully that's come from COVID and keep on with those. So teaching people how to play wasn't about um, guiding them through. It was, you know, getting outside and helping them access what it feels like to be in their body. And I mean, my husband and I just wasn't even too long ago. We had had one of those hectic days. We were doing that rat race thing one thing after the other, and he leads a really stressful job. We've got lots of kids at home, and we took a walk up to the stream, and we had the dogs with us, and and suddenly things kind of shifted in there um, when we got really present and noticing each other, being playful and splashing, 
it was a big shift and getting into ourselves, it can bring that opportunity. So I do think couples may, you know, take some of that tendency to be really hectic and slow down. And, and that play, when you talk about play, is it um, uh, an attitude uh, versus playing something like, you know, some yeah. couples might look at each other and think play, what are we going to play? You know, like <laughs> play, you know, tennis and that might be foreign to them, but is it, is it more just being light and being vulnerable and being happy and being in the moment uh, exactly. as opposed to having an added pressure? Yeah, exactly. So it's not, I mean, you could be playing a game, but it's not scheduling it in. So it's more about, like, we, we actually have a brain center. We have a play center in our brain where it's guiding us to be playful. So just like we have an emotional center in our brain to be looking out for fear, we don't schedule it in that we're going to be going for a walk and then I'll feel fearful when I come around this corner. Something happens and we feel that way. So why play is so important is that when we can get really present, we can feel what it's like to have that urge to, you know, maybe you're washing the car and suddenly a water fight happens. Um, maybe you're you know, looking at your partner while they're making breakfast and you might walk by and give them a tap on the butt because you are present. So it, it, it's also like a really youth-dependent thing. So use it or lose it. When, when we're not being playful, it gets really difficult. And with all the stressors of the past year with the pandemic, it was really difficult for people to access that, particularly if they weren't playful as, as children and that wasn't available to them. And, and maybe um, if they weren't playful prior to the pandemic in their relationship, would it be yeah. more difficult for them to become? And, and I would imagine it's something that you would have to make a concerted effort toward and it, and starting with being present in the relationship, present in the moment. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for the people that it isn't readily available, I can think of one of my most favorite couples I work with. They came in because she was an over-functioner. He was an under-functioner. Um, and this, these were really good people. And they set up their lives with a lot of predictability and, and you know, uh, routine and both professionals. So that looks really good. And at times, though, it could get a bit stagnant. So talking to her about play was actually really triggering. Um, if you haven't had a childhood where you had that safeness and connectedness, talking about play, it, it's like there's no blood flow to that part of your brain. So we had to go really slow. We had to really be respectful and understand that for her, she didn't have that predictability when she was really young. It was chaotic and play was dangerous. So starting to build that concept really slowly and instead of, you know, like we had, I had done, gone for a big walk in the forest and was splashing in the stream, for her going for a walk and maybe dipping her toe in the stream that's a slow, gentle way to warm up to the idea to being playful. So I can't underscore enough about the beginning of it is being present. And when you are present, then the opportunities to be playful, they present themselves. So, you know, you could be driving in the car with your partner and a really good song comes on. Turn it up a little bit. Let it get into your soul and see what happens. 
Yeah, that's a great idea. I love that one. Um, I, you mentioned over-functioners and under-functioners. And, and yeah. sometimes we feed off our partners or, you know, uh, as they say, the opposites attract or, or one, you know, can handle it all and then the other. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's it's persistent throughout the entire relationship. But there can be times when um, one is overdoing and the other is underdoing as a result of the one uh, overdoing. But how did people who are quite different or react to stress differently um, or overfunction and underfunction, how did they fare in the pandemic? Who was it more difficult on? The more controlling type of person, the more anxious type of person? You know, did they have some tendencies prior to that set them up for more difficulty when a pandemic comes your way? Because <laughs> it's not every day, but these days yeah. it is. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, you know, some of their some of their core traits are certainly going to emerge and some of the problems and the tensions are going to likely unmask. So what I saw is the overfunctioners, let's just call them the people that are really on the ball. Um, Not that the underfunctioners aren't on the ball, but they're a little more chaotic. They're a little more spontaneous. But the overfunctioners, they're really going to take in all that news. And while, you know, it, it is important that we know what's happening, what's going on with the Delta variant, it made it so much harder for them because their their nervous system, their central nervous system was always a little bit torqued. It was always a little bit up. So, and then that was often the topic of conversation. And, the, you know, they... they Say, let's say the playful side, the, the more spontaneous one, they don't really want that. They want to park some of that and they want to just have some fun. So it did, it did create some tension. Um, but tension necessarily isn't a bad thing. And, you know, to take it back to play, when we can learn to recruit that neural network in our brain and learn to practice being playful, it isn't a switch but we certainly start to increase our capacity for more play, which then is going to bring some more connectedness. And then to go back to your point, when there's a bit of a mismatch there and a lot of tension during the, the pandemic, they started to build a really good goodwill cushion so that they can actually weather some of the difficulties. And I was talked to my couples about this idea about the kind of time intention. It's almost like when you're, if you're training for something, if you're you know, learning to be a long-distance runner or you're building muscle or you're a person who goes and does yoga and you're learning to hold a stronger plank, there's always that moment when it gets a little bit intense and you want to step out. That's the moment when things are tense and they're difficult, when a couple is having some conflict, when actually, if you can get back into your body, all the treasures, all the hidden gems are inside and you've built that closeness that you can have a difficult conversation and say the things that are really important to you. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. Nicole McLeod is my guest. She's a registered clinical counselor. She practices in West Vancouver, British Columbia. She deals with couples and individuals and her approach is informed by the interpersonal neurobiological approach to understanding the mind. Nicole, thanks for staying on the line. I, I know you also work with the developmental model and attachment theory, but tell me, um, and for the listeners too, what is uh, what do you mean by the interpersonal neurobiological approach to understanding the mind? Who understands yeah, the ab- mind? <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, um, I have been so fortunate to 
Well, I read a lot and did a lot of courses with Dr. Dan Siegel and went down to California to do some training with him. So he really looks at integrating and a big piece of his approach is integrating um, our left hemisphere with our right hemisphere. So our analytical side with our creative side, the top down. So our prefrontal cortex with our, you know, our really instinct driven um, amygdala. And he says when we're when we're at our best, our brain and our mind are like an orchestra. So when things are synchronous versus asynchronous, when we aren't getting, um, we're not, he has this fabulous hand model of the brain. And if you can picture making a fist and then some in there, that's your amygdala. That's where all your fight, flight, freeze, and your emotions and dissociation, all that is in there. And when you get triggered, and really dysregulated, you flip your lid and you're firing from there. So with a lot of mindful awareness, um, then we can kind of keep that prefrontal cortex a bit more in check. And it's the place where we think, it's the place where we make decisions. So in my practice with individuals and couples, I spent a lot of time in terms of, you know, psychoeducation and people really like to understand what's going on. Um, they really enjoy because it, it's power. Knowledge is power for them. And then they have a bit more governance over making some choice for themselves and understanding there's things that they can do when their sympathetic nervous system is activated and how to bring their parasympathetic nervous system back online. Just deep breaths, being still, getting into their body. Absolutely. You know, and that's such a big issue in so many relationships where, you know, one or both may lose it, they may get triggered uh, by something that, you know, they might get offended, they might be particularly sensitive or something that happened in childhood. Um, and, uh, and that is absolutely correct. Nicole, we're going to have to have you back on the program to dig a little deeper into that issue, because anger in a relationship expressed in an unhealthy manner um, can be very toxic. How can people get in touch with you if they would like more information? Yeah, absolutely. You can go to my website, coastalmind.com. And if there's questions from tonight, you can get on there. There's a get in touch page on there as well. And I'm happy to ask any or offer any solutions to other questions. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's been a pleasure having you. And, and I know that you have provided great information to get couples who may be suffering out there on, on the road to playfulness, if nothing else. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks for having me, all right, welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. This is no word of a lie. Dr. Kevin McLeod, and I'll never live it down. Let, never let him live it down. <laughs> Tweeted that he was going to be talking about handcuffs and ceiling mirrors and disco balls <laughs> on your ceiling. Anyway, and I thought, ah, what a great idea for a segment. Uh, anyway, ceiling mirrors, you know, they basically open up spaces. They reflect light. If you're into, um, you know, that Art Deco style or contemporary, a mirrored ceiling may add a touch of glamour to your bedroom. Uh, it might make your bedroom look a little bit brighter from whatever natural light that you have flowing into it or artificial light. But let's get real. We're not talking about mirrors, um, on the ceiling for decorative purposes. This is the back to the bedroom segment. And uh, we want to talk about how mirrors can improve your sex life. Now you've got to be uber confident 
uh, in your body image, I think, in order to put a mirror on your ceiling. Mirrors on the ceiling. Um, <laughs> I love that song. That is such a great song. Um, but because you know what? Oftentimes people don't want to look in a mirror because they don't like what they see, especially if they have body image issues. But a lot of couples enjoy looking at themselves while they are making love. And a mirror can provide just a few more angles that you wouldn't be able to see otherwise. So it's not a bad idea to, uh, if you want to spice up your sex life, and I've given you lots of ideas um, in the past um, as to how you can spice up your sex life, but uh, this is one that I've uh, actually forgotten about, the little mirror thing. But you don't have to put a mirror on the ceiling because it's actually pretty expensive, but you can get that pink champagne on ice. Um, it could be pretty expensive, and, and it might be dangerous. <laughs> as well should you get somebody who does um you know a pretty shoddy job the ceiling tiles or you or maybe you're going to cheap out on it and you're going to go for ceiling tiles and the ceiling tiles could fall off and kill you so that wouldn't be very good um but there are other, other places that you can um that you can place mirrors strategically uh so that you can actually spice up your sex life um, so you, we all think of, you know, maybe adding a disco ball. That's something else. And you, you might, if you have body image issues, <laughs> you might add the disco ball. Um, but there's other ways, um, uh, that you can actually spice up your little sex life there in your bedroom. Um, and so you should install something at least um, you know what? It could be as simple as a closet mirror or just like a full length mirror. You can get them at Target or Walmart or Ikea. They, they're often very cheap and they're easy to install and they won't arouse any suspicion. You know, if somebody comes into your bedroom and they see a mirror on the ceiling, they might think you have sex. Oh my gosh. Um, but you know, a, a closet mirror is a good idea. A lot of people don't even have any mirrors. I've heard this so much. And I've also heard that People um, in hairdressers, when they go to the hairdresser, they don't like to look at their full self in the mirror because they might have a weight problem or a body image issue. They don't like how their skin looks. And so a lot of hair salons are actually making the mirrors smaller. But I'm suggesting that you add more mirrors or make them bigger. And, you know, when you have a closet mirror, you have to strategically place it, of course, and maybe you have to strategically place your bed uh, in the right spot so that you can look over at the mirror while you're making love with your partner and your partner will follow suit to see what you're looking at. And when they do, you can say something like, I love watching us being together. Um, you know, it can be very exciting. It can be a real thrill to watch yourselves making love from a totally different angle. Um, especially when you have all of your moves, uh, your new moves. Also, um, some other ways that you can, it's, it's always good to have a dresser mirror. Um, even that's helpful too, because it's kind of from the waist up and a lot of people don't mind, uh, from the waist up. A lot of women have additional, um, abdominal weight. And so they don't like to see that. So this is typically from above that, uh, up. And so you, um, can't get much leeway with the dresser mirror, but you, you can, um, you know, what you can get is actually equally exciting. And so you can seduce your partner in front of it. So people tend to maybe get dressed or comb their hair or whatever, put on a tie 
in front of a of a dresser mirror and uh, or maybe you're just standing naked in front of it. But if you're not naked in front of it, uh, maybe your partner comes along and can begin to undress you in front of the mirror. And so that could be pretty exciting as well. Uh, and the other thing is then the movable mirror. That's something that you bring into the bed with you. And it might sound strange, but a lot of people enjoy bringing in a handheld mirror because they want to get a close-up of of what's going on. But, you know, as I said, body image is the biggest thing that comes into mind here. And, and I did get an email from, I forget his name today, asked me to send him my all-in diet plan, all-in nutrition plan. And so I, I will send that out. And if you want that, email me at nursetalk at hotmail.com. And then you can actually go and um, go and purchase some mirrors. So if you want to get that extreme close-up of what's going on down there, and if you're into that, by all means, go for it. Um, you know, it may actually uh, end up, that little mirror, the handheld one, might put more focus on the mirror than on the sex. But um, anyway, that could actually kill the moment. But anyway, ultimately... Probably the most exciting one is that mirror on the ceiling. Welcome back to the final segment of the Sunday Night Health Show. Joining me on the line is the executive director of Sex and Self, a Montreal not-for-profit organization that focuses on advocacy for sexual and reproductive health and rights. She is Felicia Jasondi. Hello, Felicia. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's definitely been an interesting couple weeks uh, to be in the position that I've been in. (laughs) I can imagine, especially being in Montreal as well. I invited you on the program because I wanted to talk to you about the ill-fated decision of the uh, Montreal Canadiens, specifically Jeff Molson who is the president of that organization and and part owner, who drafted Logan Mayu, somebody who has a criminal past um, about uh, with regard to violence against women. In fact, he was convicted in Sweden about a year ago of sharing, uh, without permission, uh, illicit photos of uh, a, a young woman. What is... What does this kind of thing uh, do to somebody like you who works in this field, uh, works so closely to advocate for uh, victims of sexual assault and, uh, and um, other people who have been, are injured by criminal behavior like this? Well, I mean, I definitely have to say it's been a very sad time to be a Montrealer and to be a woman. Um, it was very, very exciting to watch the Montreal Canadiens go so far in the Stanley Cup and then make a decision like this, essentially. Especially since this year, in April of 2021, after eight Quebec women were murdered within eight weeks due to homicide, um, there was a women's march. And In industries like this, when we really need male allies to come and support and stand with us and stand in alignment with us, we see actions like this happen, Um, which is very, very upsetting to see. And to also hear the woman's statement, the victim in the situation, the young girl, come forward and say that all she wanted was a sincere apology 
and she said that she received a text that was no longer than three sentences. Whereas the Canadians are coming forward and the general manager is coming forward saying that the young man, you know, admitted he made a serious mistake and we're acknowledging his poor behavior when he's a criminal. And obviously nobody in this institution is really paying any direct cause to the victim of the situation, which is the woman. Um, it's also really interesting to look at the media coverage. If you, you know, Google Mayu recently, um, right now the Montreal media is really driving this narrative that he was out left to dry and that the Canadians should not have drafted him even though he, you know, requested to not be drafted because he did put out a statement saying that he felt like he wasn't mature enough. But from the woman's perspective, the victim's perspective to say that she received a text no longer than three sentences and, and there's something not lining up. From whom did she receive that text? So Logan Mayu sent her uh, a message. When they went into court about a year ago, her request was to basically receive a sincere apology. And I actually looked into the case a little bit more. Um, and he was given a fine uh, that I think translated to about $2,100 Canadian um, from Stockholm currency. So... He really wasn't punished that much, and there wasn't, and there isn't any kind of reparations, at least to our knowledge, to the public's knowledge, being made. Because the Montreal Canadiens and the general manager, Marc Bergevin, uh, came forward and they said that they're working on, you know, creating reparations and supporting this young man through this journey. And I definitely think that there should be spaces for, you know, men to reconcile and to learn and be rehabilitated from these situations. But the narrative that's going on right now is if you're a man and you are a sexual predator con convicted of sexual misconduct, if you're a young man watching my you get drafted into the NHL, you're saying that this is all okay. And that's right. that he's, he's you been can rewarded. still be... Yeah, he 100%. hasn't been punished, exactly. He's being rewarded. Do you think that Jeff Molson and the others are endorsing a culture of violence against women um, by drafting Logan Mayu? A hundred percent. And what's actually very interesting to note is that not only does this violence against women kind of perpetuate in this culture toxic masculinity and the sports environment because we know that there's a history of you know athletes being very abusive to their wives a lot of this kind of alpha male energy is is essentially born into this athletic culture what's really interesting to look at is Matt Chavez who's the general uh, manager of the Montreal Canadiens was actually an assistant general, general manager for the Chicago Blackhawks. And while he was the assistant manager for the Chicago Blackhawks, this was about in 2010, there was a player actually under his watch that came forward with sexual assault um, allegations. So a male player coming forward against the video coach Bradley Aldridge, and he accused... Um, Bradley of assaulting him and not only was he dismissed but he was demonized by his players so the general manager of the Montreal Canadiens has a reputation for the last 10 years of being mildly at least complicit to sexual assault and sexual violence but 
in my opinion, if this has happened before and it's obviously being happened again and he's endorsing it, I would feel very comfortable by saying that Marc Bergevin is not only endorsing it, but praising individuals who are and who have these tendencies, who have these um, allegations or accusations. And actually, Bradley Aldridge, who was the video coach of the Chicago Blackhawks in 2010, eventually did admit to assaulting a minor three years after that situation. So while the, wow. the case never fully closed in the Chicago Blackhawks scenario with the player, because I can't imagine what it's like to be a male in that environment to come forward with sexual assault allegations when you're such a small minority, um, and to not pursue the claims, and then to see essentially your perpetrator confess to assaulting a minor three years later. I can't imagine the trauma that that player was going through. But to be the general manager or to be the assistant general manager and be in two institutions where this is continuously happening, obviously there's an issue. And whether he's complicit or whether he is completely just careless with his players, with the environment, with the culture, with the reputation... Both times, um, whether it was with the Chicago Blackhawks or with the Montreal Canadiens, both statements are very dismissive. Uh, whether it's with the Chicago Blackhawks, they were very, very cut and dry with the court cases that ended up happening um, from about 2010 to 2013. And then the statements that the Montreal Canadiens put out right after they drafted Mayu is just, it's embarrassing. Like, you know that there's going to be public backlash, but you also know that it's just objectively wrong. Um, this boy is not like God's gift to earth. He can take a couple years to make reparations. And as a sexual health advocate and as someone who has programming for um, young men and women and anyone in between, I'm really interested to see what the Montreal Canadiens do to essentially help rehabilitate this 18-year-old. I don't think, actually, that a hockey team is a therapeutic environment, especially <laughs> given who it's led by, but it's a therapeutic environment for any sexual predator or anybody who has been convicted of a crime. We have about a minute left, and I just want to ask you, this kind of thing, um, how does it affect people who have been sexually assaulted and and perhaps uh, have been dismissed or um, you know noses have been turned up by it or, or people who have been disregarded how does this trigger them and, and what does that do to them well I think it's definitely something that's very individual and it's uh, specific to each person and each individual's trauma but I think not only does it reaffirm to women that they feel like they already are not going to be believed and that their counterparts, the predators, are going to be praised if not rewarded for their actions. I think that this this situation, the Montreal situation in itself, also puts men at a disadvantage too. Men who have been assaulted, they know the environment, they know it's not accepted, they know they're going to be dismissed. It's just perpetuating all of these really, really terrible fears that survivors of sexual assault have. And it may be entirely triggering, too, because we don't have a clear, you know, yellow brick road to 
going through the process of either accusing or coming forward or um, resolving an incident of sexual assault. So it's all of these these huge bridges to climb and mountains to climb um, when it comes to sexual assault can be extremely triggering for individuals who had a very, very treacherous experience either coming forward or advocating for themselves or even seeking out assistance in institutions that are supposed to protect them. I think that's the biggest thing to take from here. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct, Felicia. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. We'll definitely have to get you back because I really feel we need to keep this conversation going. Uh, You know, we we cannot just let, uh, we cannot forget this and just let it, you know, pass us by like like a puck flying on the ice. So thank you so much. Where can people get more information about the work that you do? Absolutely. If you want to learn more about our organization in Montreal, and we're actually expanding to Ontario, uh, you can check us out at www.sexandself.com. And we're on all our social media platforms under Sex and Self. You can find us there. Thank you so much, Felicia Jasandi. Really a pleasure to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.